Hey guys, this is Tom. Welcome back to the Philly Young Adults Podcast. We are still going through the book of Deuteronomy with their pastor, Brian Weed, on Monday nights at Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. If you're in the area, we do encourage you to come out to the study. The teaching is always joined by some great time of worship and fellowship afterwards, but we do pray that this blesses you if maybe you couldn't make it out or if you just wanted to give it another listen. For more information about our ministry here at Calvary Chapel, Philly Young Adults, or our podcast, you can check out phillyonadults.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless you guys. All right, Deuteronomy. We're going to be in chapter 19, but actually the first verse we're going to read is in verse 16 tonight. Thank you, Garrison. When is the next book club? And what book are they supposed to have read? Oh, Halsby. And they can pick that up or on Amazon. It's good? All right. Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy is basically the record of a series of speeches given by a man named Moses. Some of you hear this every time we do this. As they were, uh, as he was leading the people of Israel, they had come out of slavery. After many years in slavery in Egypt, God had miraculously freed them. And they were on the cusp now of stepping into a brand new land. We call it the land of Israel, but up to that time it was called the land of Canaan. And God was giving it to them as an inheritance. And their leader this whole time through that journey out of Egypt had been this man named Moses. And these were basically his sign-off speeches, a series of them that he gave to Israel on the eve of them entering Canaan and also right before he died. This is basically like his last will and testament. And there's all kinds of elements to them. Some of them, some of what, what these speeches are made up of, which is what we'll be looking at tonight, are actually directions. You can almost call them like laws, directions for how to order and organize their society and what they should do when they're living in the land. And one of the main themes that we ran into uh, last time was in Deuteronomy chapter 16 uh, in verse 20. So let's pray. I'm going to read that verse and we're going to jump into the study tonight. So Father, thank you for the chance to study your word. Thank you for a roof over our heads on a rainy night. Thank you for Bibles in our hands. Thank you for hearts and ears and eyes, Lord. Give us spiritual ears and eyes. Give us understanding. Again, as I always want to pray, help me not to get in the way of your word. You are well able to do your own work. We pray you would do it tonight. Help me simply to just be a good tour guide, Lord. Your word is awesome, and all the wonders are there, Lord. So let us see the things we need to see. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, This verse, verse 20 in Deuteronomy 16, Moses said to Israel, justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Or as I told you a couple weeks ago, it's really a translation when it says justice and only justice of two, of one Hebrew word that's repeated, tzedakah, tzedakah, depending how you want to say it, since I don't speak Hebrew. Righteousness, righteousness. And I just pointed out that when Hebrew wants to sort of give you the idea that something is completely that thing or fully that thing or purely that thing, it doubles the word, right? So righteousness, righteousness is like absolute righteousness. And 
Tonight, in this passage of Deuteronomy, we're going to be talking about a series of directions and laws that have to do with issues of life and death. And we're going to be talking about them in terms of righteousness, because this verse in chapter 16 actually can can sort of, you can let it act as a kind of header for the next sections that follow, that God is explaining in more detail what he meant when he said to Israel, you shall follow only righteousness, righteousness. That's what your society should be like. And I pointed out uh, last week a couple things, or two weeks ago, that righteousness is, we're going to be seeing this tonight, we'll, we'll see this maybe a couple times, it's not simply justice, it's like everything that makes life worth living. It's faithfulness to your word. It's the ability to build and, and, and fix. It's mostly at its core, a covenant commitment to God himself is what is sort of, if you could boil righteousness down to, down to the, the nugget core that it is. And then everything that flows out of that, when people are faithful to God and, and, and giving him adequate due, what a society is like. And the Bible calls that righteousness. It's, it's, basically the world we all want to live in. And justice, we're going to see tonight, is part of that. Another thing that we saw is that the New Testament tells us that in Christ, this goes with actually what Garrison was talking about, Christians are enabled to and actually do and should fulfill what what the Bible calls the righteous requirement of the law. Tonight we're reading the law, but there is a righteous requirement. There's There's a sort of a core basic spiritual meaning to it. And in the New Testament, you have statements like in Romans 8, where uh, Paul writes, what the law could not do, weak as it was through flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We looked at this when we were studying the book of Exodus. Paul teaches that this is what the Spirit enables us to do. Understand what even the Old Testament law is telling us, but especially the teachings of Christ, and then live it out. And Jesus taught this way too. He said things like this. These are famous statements, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Or he said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Or he said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, his kingdom, and his righteousness. And all these other things shall be added to you. So that's just a quick survey. Jesus actually spoke about this a lot. And it's the sort of thing that I think was easy for me to miss until I started focusing on it. But Christians are to desire to live out God's righteousness personally. We're going to be coming back to these concepts as we look at Deuteronomy. And as we're reading books like Exodus and Deuteronomy, we're learning about the personal righteousness that God wants us to experience by sort of one way to do it, by looking at the way God established a society-wide righteousness in ancient Israel. So we're looking at how did God establish something for the whole society, but there's things for us to learn about our own personal lives. And at the same time, we're keeping one eye on how Jesus points the way to this even higher goal that he enables us to fulfill of, as I said, personal righteousness for his followers. So that was a probably overly quick introduction. You can turn to chapter 19, where we're going to be picking up tonight. This is how far we've come. Chapter 19, verse 1. And as I said, tonight we're going to be looking at uh, laws and directions, mostly, that have to do with righteousness. uh, And I just tried to come up with a basic heading for this section. I think you could say righteousness in areas of life and death. So... You'll see what we mean as we get into it. 
chapter 19, verse 1. Here we go. You can read with me. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them. So again, this is spoken to Israel on the eve of the conquest of Canaan. And you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses. You shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. So you don't know why he's telling them to do this until the very end of verse 3 there. It's so that if someone is involved in what same thing we would call manslaughter, they can flee there, right? In other words, well, it says, verse 4, this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, Right? The same thing, we, same thing we call it today. Not having hated him in time past, verse 5, as when, for instance, a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. He shall flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and kill him. Though he was not, so the avenger of blood would have been the next thing that would have normally happened in the society, right? Someone from the family that would have gone after the manslayer. Uh, the, since he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in time past. Verse 7. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. So, in other words, have a place for these people to flee. If you're driving down the hill and your brakes go out and you're like, oh no, and you hit someone else's car and they die. And you're like, this is a brand new car. Like, it wasn't your fault at all, you know? and you're heartbroken, get out of your car and run to the nearest city of refuge and go now. And it's rough. Like, yeah, your day just got changed, but at least you won't die is the idea because, uh, you know, the people who thought they were going to enact justice are coming after you, even though you truly are innocent. But look at verse eight. Now, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God, as he says the whole time through Deuteronomy, and to walk in, always in his ways, then you shall add, so if you get more territory and it's too far to go to one of those cities, then he says, you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And thus, big term, guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So innocent blood being shed, verse 10, leads to guilt of bloodshed. So, so this, this phrase, this reality, guilt of bloodshed, is a real thing, whether it's revenge bloodshed or really any bloodshed. The, the guilt of bloodshed, it says here, can come upon a person or a whole land. And then the person or even the whole society, is the idea, will be guilty Israel was learning here, as Moses taught, that God's righteousness isn't just some knee-jerk reaction to things, or it's not even, you know, God's righteousness isn't even some cold, mechanical application of impersonal laws, like going to the DMV or something, right? Righteousness, righteousness recognizes motives. You see that in these passages we just read. Righteousness limits the effects of rage and revenge, it's one of the things that's going on with these laws here. Righteousness prevents cycles of revenge and violence. These laws would have prevented that cycle of revenge as like a clan versus a clan. They started killing each other back and forth. But righteousness still recognizes that life is sacred. It's not no big deal if this happens. You can't just take life even accidentally and then act like nothing's occurred. So look at verse, uh, 
Look at verse 11 as we move on. Or that would be actually verse 10 is that idea, right? Even, even if you didn't mean it, something did happen. It's going to have consequences. But now, of course, verse 11 is the other situation. But if anyone hates his neighbor, right? So this was what we would call murder. Lies in wait for him, rises against him, and strikes him mortally so that he dies. And he flees to one of these cities. So you murder someone and then you're like, I'm going to the city of refuge. Verse 12. Then the elders of his city shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. It wasn't an established police force or anything like that. It was assumed the people were mature enough and righteous enough, as we said a couple weeks ago, to handle their own business. But here it is, verse 13. Murder sheds innocent blood. Just like we saw above. That brings guilt on a land and a people. And righteousness takes care of the blood guilt by taking away the life of the person who shed the blood. So this you would call something like justice in the service of righteousness. Righteousness. Remember, righteousness is always the bigger term than justice. It's the world justice needs to live in. But this would be justice in the service of righteousness, which means that these verses 11 to 13 are an application and a fulfilling of the sixth commandment. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, I don't want to lose you here, but if you are, follow me for a second. These verses are actually an application and a fulfilling of the sixth commandment, which is you shall not murder. These verses are not a violation of the sixth commandment. If you translate the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, and then you read, deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood so that he may die, you're like, contradiction, right? It's not a contradiction. Probably you should just translate the sixth commandment, thou shalt do no murder, do not murder each other. And then applying justice to the one who does is actually, it's keeping the sixth, it's fulfilling the sixth commandment. You don't commit murder According to these verses, if you execute judgment on someone who broke God's command not to murder. Now, I have not by any stretch solved the debate around capital punishment, especially in a society that's not actually based on God's word. But it's just, I think if, if you want to think about those things in terms of a just society, it's important to at least see how God set up his righteous society. And now look at verse 14. I have a new topic here. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So you can see verses 1 through 13, as I said, is building on the sixth commandment. And I think you can see this right here, verse 14, as building on the eighth and the tenth commandments. And there's actually a lot of that going on there. And if you kind of keep the ten commandments in mind as you read things like Deuteronomy, it'll help you understand them more. So the eighth commandment is don't steal. Tenth commandment, don't covet. Don't want what your neighbor has. Don't take what your neighbor has, which is what would be going on there in verse 14. Uh, and admittedly, this verse can, even when I was studying, I was like, I wish this verse wasn't there. It kind of breaks the flow, right? It can seem sort of out of place, but you're not supposed to think that about the Bible. So I shut that thought off and never thought it again. Uh, it does seem to be linked to the previous section by words like neighbor and inheritance. Those words were showing up in the verses just before. And, and a way to understand how the Bible hangs together is to look for those, those verbal links. And so maybe the idea is just something like chapter 19, verse 1, God is giving you the land, so don't defile it by murder. And also, even though it's much smaller of an issue, because it is, don't envy and steal your neighbor's portion of the land. In, in all these things, we're talking about what's going to mess the land up. And so murder will mess the land up, and stealing from each other will also mess the land up. So righteousness includes not envying what other people have. 
It's interesting because this is one of those principles, I think, when you read verse 14, that kind of flattens things out. Rich people and poor people are both addressed by this. You, you can't move your neighbor's landmark if you're, if you're the richest man or if you're the poorest man. It doesn't matter, right? Just that's not, It has nothing to do with your personal economics. Don't move it. Don't covet. Don't steal. Verse 15. Notice kind of back to now issues of life and death. One witness. So now it's talking about how are you going to, how are you going to handle, you know, public justice, right? One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Verse 16. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother. Now, this is interesting. Verse 19. If he's lied about this crime, then you shall do to him as though he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter, they shall not commit such evil among you. This kind of lying, right? Your, your eye shall not pity. Verse 21. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So again, here Moses goes back to explaining how Israel was to conduct these matters of what I'm calling public justice. You know what I mean? A society that's permeated by righteousness will understand that criminal justice will only be righteous if it's guided by reality and truth. That might be the most obvious thing that needs to be said today or that it could be, but there it is, right? Notice, notice in this passage, the emphasis. And it's interesting because, of course, God always knows who's innocent and who's guilty. He knows, but we don't know who's innocent and guilty in a situation where some crime seems like it's been committed because we're limited. So Israel, because they were human like us, had to make sure that any accusation that came before public officials was actually true. Justice couldn't be pursued by any other means than by carefully taking the time and the effort to determine whether the individual was actually guilty of the sin they were accused of. And so notice too, though, I want you to see this in this passage too. We're not dealing with issues of crime simply. We're not just talking about crimes, right? Which is like breaking a rule or breaking a law. We're talking about sin. God doesn't really talk about crime. He talks about sin, which is more about how we honor God and how we treat each other who are made in the image of God. So false accusations where someone tried to leverage the power of the community and even the power of God's word, sort of get those two things in their corner to, uh, to come against another Israelite for the sake of personal gain or, or re- revenge or whatever, those kinds of false accusations, they were a serious issue. I think it's because God knows that we can't have functioning societies where lies direct our public action. Again, that sounds like a very relevant statement, right? So anyone who got tempted to falsely accuse someone, if that temptation came into my heart, like I could falsely, I could accuse this guy of, you know, worshiping an idol or, or killing someone or something, If that came into your heart, you had to grapple with the fact that if you lost the case, you would receive whatever penalty you were asking to be applied to your neighbor. So you you really had to think, I think, before you brought any kind of accusation. You're like, if I lose, they're doing it to me, right? Notice how forcefully the point is made there in verse 19 
Uh, and, and it says, and put away the evil from among you. And notice then that this whole thing we're talking about here is actually the context of verse 21. You look at verse 21. This is a famous verse, right? When Moses said verse 21 at, at this particular time, Deuteronomy, he was actually referencing two of the times at least when this had already be said, already been said. And they're recorded in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24. And the Leviticus passage reads like this, right? Uh, here's how it reads in Leviticus. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. So in other words, this was God's way of showing the Israelites how to pursue righteousness when someone has injured someone else, very simply. And it, it's important, I think, to see here that it wasn't only demanding a kind of full payment, that is one part of it, right? If, you, if the guy breaks your arm and he loses the case, his arm can be broken. That was part of it. But it was actually also limiting what the injured party could demand in terms of justice. So if you got into a fight and you get in a fight with your neighbor uh, and it, it left him blind in one eye or it left you blind in one eye, you know, he blinds you. You can't come back and demand that his hand be cut off or that he get the death penalty. I mean... It, this is especially true, like, what if a poor guy gets in a fight with a rich guy? And the rich guy's blind in one eye. In a lot of societies, you're done if you're the poor guy, right? It's like, the rich guy's like, put him to death. How dare he, you know? Not, nope. Limited in Israel, what could be demanded. And your family couldn't, again, then go and initiate a cycle of revenge. There couldn't be some, like, honor killing or something because you, you know, lost an eye. No, it was tried once. The penalty was applied based on the injury. And then that was the end of the matter in Israel. It was supposed to be over. Now, a lot of you know this. Jesus actually picked this teaching up and he said this to his followers. I'm reading this from Matthew chapter five. He said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you, take and take your shirt let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who, per who persecute you. Again, that's from Matthew chapter five. And that could be a whole Bible study. But let me just point out a couple things quickly for tonight. Jesus here was not establishing a new set of directions for human government. That's not what those, that passage in Matthew chapter 5 is. Uh, the statements he makes there are for individual followers of Christ and, I think, for the church as the community of believers. What Jesus is not doing there is describing how a just government should function in a fallen world. He's not saying, I'm going to change, and I know what Moses said, but I'm going to change the, the description now of public justice as we pursue society-wide righteousness. So now, what you should do is, whenever someone commits a crime and they're taken to court, I want the judges to find out whatever they did to the injured party and then go back to the injured party and just do it to them again. Like if they slap them on the cheek... Have him slapped again on the cheek, right? So it's not, he's not talking about a courtroom scene, or again, he's not talking about any kind of public justice. And in Romans chapter 13, we're told that Jesus' coming hasn't changed the direction for human government at all. It's still to execute justice on evil, right? So that's not what Matthew chapter 5 is really doing. So what is Jesus saying there? Now that I've just said all the things I think he's not saying, what is he saying? I think he's saying to his followers, to his church, right? 
to us, all of us that are followers of Christ here tonight. If you live under a system that operates in line with God's directions for public justice or not, whether or not you live under that kind of government, this kind of justice does serve righteousness in the public realm, but it's not the full expression of righteousness. Again, this is just justice. It's a small thing. It's not the full expression of righteousness. There's something even higher. A judge can't demand that someone turn the other cheek. I just imagine that. If you take someone to court, they stole five grand from you. The judge is like, turn the other cheek. You're like, what are you talking about? He's like, let him steal another five grand from you. You're like, you would, I think, rightly be like, I'm in, I'm in crazy town, right? It doesn't work that way. But a follower of Christ can and should turn the other cheek. This is what Jesus is saying. There's something higher than public justice. And when we do, that will show that even in this fallen world, God can so take care of someone that they don't need retribution when they're wronged. Followers of Jesus, we can be in a place where we can afford to refuse to be compensated when we're wronged. I mean, that doesn't excite me to say that, right? No one, I think, gets excited by that statement, just especially when we're not, maybe when we're not thinking spiritually. But that's what Christ is saying. We can, we can afford to be in a place where God is so taken care of us that, that we're like, I don't need to be compensated instead of making every situation about retribution. So Jesus told us that when we're wronged, we should transpose the issue into the category of generosity. It's so, so crazy the way he taught. He's like, I know you're thinking about justice, but I want you to think about generosity, right? And instead of thinking, how can I be compensated for my injury? Think, how can I be generous to my enemy? That's really what he's saying, right? Again, it's nice. I don't have to be Jesus, but I, I just have to say, oh, that's what he said. And then I can learn like the rest of you to live that out. But that is what he said there. God's heart is generous. He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. That's Luke 6, 35. Those are the words of Christ as well. He is kind. Jesus said that. He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. And Jesus called his followers to think more in terms of generosity than compensation. So as followers of Jesus, I think again that we're taught to take these passages in the Old Testament and desire societies where no one falsely accuses anyone else. Just that alone would be good for America, wouldn't it? Just that alone. And where justice is executed in a way that makes evil people think twice before they hurt others, that would be good for America. And where evil is restrained by the justice system, that would be good for America. But at the same time, ourselves, we ourselves, followers of Christ are guided by something higher than public justice. We get to be like Christ. That's what he's saying to us. Who forgives wrongs and endures injuries to himself. And he loves. And, we, and, and, and the whole point is to invite people to repent of their sin and find salvation. Right? Christians, we don't need to be those who are exacting the punishment for broken justice. We're those who can be inviting people to repent of their sin and finding salvation from their sin. Right? Christians the idea, I think, is live their lives now like Jesus lived his earthly life, postponing judgment on sin. That's what he was doing. And inviting everyone to escape the penalty for sin and to find life. And now, so as we move into chapter 20, we're moving into chapter 20 here, Moses is going to begin to teach Israel about how righteousness looks in warfare. I said these are matters of life and death. So this can seem kind of odd to us, again, as followers of Christ, Because 
we understand righteousness through the lens of Jesus' teachings, like we just did 60 seconds ago. And Jesus' teaching doesn't include any teaching at all that I'm aware of on how to conduct warfare, right? And instead, uh, which I I guess if he would do that, I would love to hear it because that would be the book on warfare, but he didn't teach on warfare. Instead, his teaching is full of things like, you know this probably, love your enemy, lay down your life, and all who take the sword will die by the sword. And that just doesn't make a good book on warfare, if, if you haven't noticed. But those are the kinds of things he said. So because of that, there are, there are real reasons why the church for 2,000 years has had a strong vein of pacifism running right through the middle of it for its entire history. There's always been Christian pacifists, and they're not crazy. They're just reading these statements of Christ, and they're thinking like, yo, there's something to this, right? But again, just want to remember a couple things as we read through these passages. First, Israel is acting and they're being directed as a sovereign state here. Again, Moses is not talking to individual people. He's talking, he's giving directions for a sovereign state. And Jesus never, again, directly taught about what his desire for governments and armies was in a fallen world. So I don't, I don't, I don't think we should pronounce too much on that because he didn't teach on that, right? Uh, we know Although Romans 13 says that the magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. So we have hints that it might be a little different than Matthew chapter 5, right? We know that when Christ returns, he's coming as a king and and like a general, basically. He's going to wage war and he's going to win. That's very clear. So it's like warfare is not somehow anti-Jesus. It's just not what he was doing in his first first time here. And he's not what he called his followers to do really at all. But he's going to come and wage war. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20, or actually 19 and 20, both. So in a world in which sin has messed up so many things, war is not intrinsically evil, right? When sin has just messed up so many things, it's not always evil. All the wars I can think of recently do seem to be evil. But the, the thing itself, right, we know that from Scripture. It's not intrinsically evil. In fact, Jesus' return, where I was just talking about him waging war and winning, is not some kind of unique event. There's actually been many times in history that God has used war to accomplish his purposes of restraining or even defeating some huge evil. You see that through scripture. And actually, this is exactly the situation that Israel was about to step into. This is one of those times in history where God's going to use war to defeat and, and ultimately actually eradicate evil in one part of the world, uh, which was, we said, called Canaan. And when they had set their nation state up, this is going to be future to Deuteronomy, if they pursued the kind of righteousness that God laid out in his law, they would be on hand then for God to use for the purpose of of sort of global righteousness, even through warfare, they'd be on hand for that purpose whenever God wanted. And so because warfare could be a way that God was going to use Israel as a nation, he gave them guidelines, I think, about how to pursue righteousness even when they were engaged in warfare. Uh, I thought it was important to sort of set that up. So, you know, like, why are we even, why was this even in the Bible? That's my stab, but I think why. So you have passages like this, starting in verse one of chapter 20. Let's read this passage. This section stretches all the way down to verse nine here. So chapter 20, verse one, when you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be, when you're on the verge of battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. 
Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, what man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. Also, what man is there here who has planted a vineyard and hasn't eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man marry her. You get these, these, these different scenarios, right? Verse 8, the officers, officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house. Isn't this interesting? Lest the heart of his, brother, his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be, when the officers have finished speaking to the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. And again, to understand passages like this, and, and to benefit from them as followers of Christ, we have to be able to see what part of righteousness is on display here. So first, what do we see about righteousness and warfare when it comes to the Israelite army as it was approved by God to wage any given war, right? That's the, that's the background here, especially the battles they were about to go fight in Canaan. So first, I think it's pretty surprising here that God actually, imagine maybe you do too, that God actually makes this exception for people who are just flat out eaten up by fear. If you're just freaked out and you're scared to go into battle, like right in the middle of this passage on warfare, you find this like soft, tender thing happening. Uh, righteousness evidently doesn't force people beyond what they can handle. Yeah, it's very interesting. It recognizes authentic weakness. And it's not that fear isn't ever something we should just get rid of and overcome, especially for men. We see that in scripture too, and we'll talk about that more in a moment, but it is that God is willing to acknowledge that we have limits. Isn't that great? That's what I see in this passage. If you're standing there, and even as a dude, and you're like, I can't do this. The priest would be like, if you've hit your limit, if you can't do it, go home. Now, I guess if like all 7,000 of them went home, the priest would be like, one time I was on jury duty. I don't want to tell the story. No one wants to do jury duty, right? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm there for jury duty. And um, the judge comes in. I may have told the story before, and she is mad. And like, we're all sitting there because we're hoping we don't get picked because you want to go home, right? You know? And uh, she goes, listen. And we're all like, I'm like, what? what's going on? And she starts yelling, like basically lecturing us. This society can't work without an impartial jury. And it has to be a jury of the peers. And all you wrote ridiculous reasons why you can't serve as a jury. And she just like lit everybody up. Because all the reasons were dumb, I guess. Everyone gave these stupid reasons why they couldn't be on the jury. And then she literally went person by person. Juror number 17, do you have any reason you can't serve? No, ma'am. Okay. And she got us all to say that we could serve. And then the lawyers picked us hilarious. Um, I don't know why that, that doesn't really apply, except she wasn't merciful that day. And people might have had, <laughs> I don't know. It was a great experience. I'm sitting there like, this is hilarious. We're all getting yelled at. No, ma'am, I could serve as a juror, you know. I didn't write any stupid excuses, of course. I was totally willing to do my civic duty. Um, but God, at least, is willing to acknowledge, as I said, that we have limits. And I think this includes here even a normally brave man who's just a little off balance because, you know, he just got married, right? Maybe he's like the man in battle, but he's like, dude, I got married like two weeks ago. Or I, I, we're engaged. I'm supposed to get married next week. Did you really have to call us to battle? The priest is like, go home. Isn't that amazing? Go get married. You can die in battle next year, right? Um, no, that's not what it says. Uh, go ahead, Moses says. Go back. Take care of your business. 
But like I said, though, that's not all we learn about fear here. It's a great passage. As merciful as this passage is, still notice verse three there. Look at verse three and verse eight, two important verses. Verse three tells us that righteousness includes not just a mercy for the fearful, but a boldness and a victory over fear that recognizes that if God tells us to step into a battle, we don't have to worry about the odds because he'll be with us. And God's people are to draw strength from that awareness of God's presence. In the New Testament, that same kind of encouragement, that same exhortation is applied to life in general and the kinds of battles that we're actually going to face because of the opposition directed against the message of Jesus. Again, we're not called to go conquer territory and we're not called as followers of Christ to go eradicate evil by the sword, but we are called to spread the message of Christ and that will lead to opposition. And so the same kind of exhortations are there in the New Testament for the opposition we're going to face. There's a strong vein of things like what it says in Hebrews 13, 6, where it says that God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say, it says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You have a lot of that kind of stuff in the New Testament. Be strong, be courageous, right? Uh, That's Joshua, but it's also in the New Testament. And verse eight here in Deuteronomy 20 helps us see the danger of everyone in community giving into fear. Super relevant verse. Fear has a way of weakening and destabilizing everything. So righteousness ultimately learns to be strengthened to live above fear for exactly the reason given in Hebrews 13. Righteousness recognizes that God is with us and therefore he will be our guard and our, and our guide. But that kind of confidence doesn't produce like arrogance or callousness. So look at verse 10, right? This isn't just about being arrogant that you're going to win all the time. When you go near a city to fight against it, and then proclaim an offer of peace to it, and it shall, uh, sorry, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but, war, uh, but, but it wants to war against you, is the idea, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself. And you shall eat the enemy's plunder which the Lord your God gives you, not the women and the children. That would be the food. That sounds weird, right? Uh, Eat the food. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not the cities of these nations. This is future stuff. But of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And we studied this particular thing when we studied through Joshua, and we looked at these, in, these things in depth. You shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. These are the peoples, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Lest, here's the point, they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So these verses from 10 down to 18 address two situations that arise in warfare. In the first situation, Moses is giving directions for warfare that occurs again in the future. After Israel has conquered and settled the land, he's not, these verses don't address why this particular battle or war is happening. And it's not a blanket approval here for any conquering Israel might feel like doing. Like they hear about a nice city, they're like, let's go get it. That's not the point. Those questions are actually just not addressed in this, in this passage at all. So assuming that there was some just cause for the battle described in verses 10 to 15 there, 
what's happening here is God's regulating how they are to conduct siege warfare against the city. And the most basic thing to understand about this passage is that at this time, this is key for understanding these passages, at this time when this is spoken and written, God was establishing Israel as his representative to the whole world. And they were, they were going to be, according to God's plan, a channel for blessing to all the nations. That's what he wanted to use them for. Not just to conquer, but to bless. So that program was announced when he had said to their national ancestor, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's Genesis chapter 12. It's key in Israel's history. It was reiterated several times. And at, at this point, in Deuteronomy, at this point in their history, the entire nation had become the recipient of that promise made to Abraham. So God wanted to use Israel, the nation now, to bless the world. So if someone fought against that, if they fought against Israel, they were literally opposing God's plan to bless the whole world and trying to wipe out and, and, and stop God's plan to bless all the nations of the world. And they needed to be moved out of the way at that point. So if Israel had a righteous reason to go to war and the enemy city surrendered, They were surrendering to God's plan to bless the world, and they were spared. It says that. But at that point, they were under Israel's authority and protection. If the city refused to surrender to Israel, if they refused to surrender to the nation that God had chosen to work through to bless the world, again, that meant, I think you know where I'm going with this, the city had set itself against God's plan to bless the world through Israel. And so it needed to be eliminated as a threat to God's plan. And that was done by executing judgment in that city on the ones who would have made the decisions in the first place and carried out the fight. And at this time in world history, it would have been the men. They would have decided, we will not submit to God's plan to bless the world through Israel, and we're going to fight them instead. And so judgment was enacted on them. The people who were just caught up in the conflict, the women and the children, verse 14, they were spared. That's what it says. Now, none of us like reading things where it sounds like women and children are being called spoil or plunder. I totally just acknowledge that, right? But that's not actually the thrust of this passage. God's not like, and you can just count them as plunder, right? What it is, is be merciful and spare those who were innocent in this situation. Because of the way those societies would have worked. Would have been the men that made this stupid decision. Don't punish everybody else. And In this sense, I think, if you can just imagine for one second the plight of those people who might have been caught up in that, I think God's point of view is that having your life reset and starting over, even in the middle of personal tragedy, like this kind of battle or war, is to be preferred over death. I think that's the idea. It's pretty stark, but I think that's there it is. But for the land of Canaan, in the next passage there, the entire culture needed to be judged. Again, like I said, we discussed in other studies. So the even even more sweeping directions are given there in verses 16 to 18 along with a reminder about why the judgment was so severe. And and just to boil it down, the dark, evil spirituality that the Canaanite cultures were pervaded by and that they practiced was a very dangerous spiritual contagion. That's the way to say it. You tell that by the way God talks about it. It would destroy Israel too. If they were contagioned, if they were contaminated by this spiritual contagion, this dark evil that pervaded the Canaanite society, Uh, it would have destroyed everything for them. And now in verse 19, the focus zooms out again with, I think, another sort of surprising set of directions. Verse 19. When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. 
I wonder if Moses was surprised all the time when he was getting these, like, okay, trees. Uh, If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Don't cut the apple trees down. I like this, these kinds of laws. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against that city that makes war with you until it is subdued. So again, when war is necessary, fine, but there's limits to it. There's no total war. God wants the people to respect the limits of violence against human beings and animals. And like we see there in verse 14, even against trees. So God's not anti-environment. In fact, he wants Israel to model respect for creation, even in a time of war. Know what kind of tree you're cutting down before you make your siege engine. It's interesting. Use the wood you need for the campaign, fine. But leave the fruit trees alone. And I think here also we see actually the kind of environmentalism God practices. I don't mind saying God's an environmentalist, but he's not a modern environmentalist. He's God, right? So what kind of environmentalism might God practice? Well, it's care for the world in view of actual human needs. That's why you lead the fruit trees because people need to eat. Don't stop, think, don't stop being human when you're fighting a war. Think about people, right? Don't cut down the fruit trees. They provide food. Righteousness keeps its head and it refuses to destroy everything just because there's a war. Israel was to model this. And you think about the kind of devastation that modern warfare produces. Israel would have known nothing like that, but they weren't even, even to get close to it. You think about things like the massive bombardments in World War I, a book out about World War I, one of those great big DK picture books right now. My boy, my boy Brian spent a lot of time reading it. World War I's dark. Why? Because it just blew everything up. Just blow it all up and then blow it up like seven more times, right? Total war or the nuclear bombs dropped on Japan. Things like just blow everything up. And, and for Israelite society, God said, don't just, don't just go in and destroy everything. Leave the food, right? And then Moses rounds off this section of laws by one more set of directions. And even though he's not talking about warfare here, this section is connected with the previous couple of chapters, again, because it's about handling life and death uh, matters, I think, at all levels of society. So look at chapter 21. We're almost done here, coming into a, to a landing. 21 verse 1. So more righteousness and life and death. If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it's not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer, which has not been worked and which has not been pulled with a yoke. This is one of those, these obscure Bible laws. Very interesting. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley flowing with water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and they shall say, and here's the speech they had to give. They do this ritual and they say these words. Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. In other words, we don't know how this happened. Verse eight, provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided, the idea is from God, on behalf for, on their behalf for the blood. So, verse 9, you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So this is kind of a unique 
sort of sacrifice here where no actual blood, if you notice, was shed uh, during the ritual. I think it's significant. I think the point was that for the, God's community in Israel, righteousness required that evil like murder be dealt with always. So if it wasn't known who committed the murder, if you can't, couldn't just do the normal justice that we saw earlier this evening, the people in that area needed some way of acknowledging that the evil had happened, both to God, you see that God's spoken to here, and to the larger community of Israel as a whole. Like everyone needs to know, like, we don't know how this guy died. And they needed a way to proclaim their innocence. And they needed a way to say publicly they really had no other way of making things right. The prayer in verse 7 is key. Again, you see the acknowledgement of evil. The prayer for God to see that the people praying were innocent. God, look on, look on this, see that we're innocent. And the request for atonement and cleansing from the evil of murder. And I think it's helpful to see a connection here between verse 9 here. Back to something we read Back in chapter verse not, uh, chapter 19, verses 11 to 13. I don't know if you want to flip this way, but you have the, what he says in verse 9 here. And in chapter 19, verse 11, he, we read this. If anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him, and strikes him mortally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall send and bring him from there. So this is when you do know who the murderer is. And deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall, here's the same phrase, put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel. The same phrase is in verse 9 here in chapter 21, that it may go well with you. So you see there, again, in both this passage and uh, 19 and 21, 9, we have the idea that innocent blood needs to be atoned for. And justice in this area needs to be served. That was essential for Israelite society to actually function on the level that God was inviting them to, which again is the level of righteousness. You couldn't have a righteous society where there was all kinds of innocent blood that wasn't being atoned for. And I think it's, it's hard to read these things and, and not think, what does that tell us about our society? The more you, you just read and you see the emphases, I think you start going, okay, what does this tell me about the land? I'm reading the book of Jeremiah right now. And you can't read Jeremiah. And have you read Jeremiah recently? You can't read Jeremiah without like thinking like, I know it's, he's not talking about America, but it's really hard not to hear him talking about America. And I think similar things happen, happen here. How much innocent blood has been shed, unavenged, in our city, in every American city, on the streets? How about just in clinics? How much innocent blood has been shed? And therefore, you just think, how much blood guilt is on us as a society? So according to Deuteronomy, the remedy for that is for every individual who has committed every sin to suffer the penalty for murder. (laughs) Just imagine that. So that we can put away as a society the blood guilt of all of us as a community. That's why I think this little story about the, the people in the heifer is so interesting because they're like in this situation where they're like, we can't do that. What do we do, right? And what I just said about everyone who's committed these sins suffering the penalty is not even possible for us right now as a society for so many reasons, as you all know, which means that the only alternative left for us is something more like this passage in chapter 21 that we just read. But since we live after the time of Christ, now we don't live in this time anymore. Jesus has already died on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. So now breaking a cow's neck won't solve anything for us. Even if we did this ritual, we're like, I don't know who killed it. It's not going to do anything. 
So that means that the only solution to all the guilt that's weighing down American society is national repentance. I do wonder sometimes if most of what we see around us is actually the result of what happens when a people are weighed down by more guilt than they can handle. It'd be interesting if we had the kind of spiritual vision to see if that was the truth. Sometimes I wonder if it is. I don't always think about it that way, right? The only solution to all that guilt is national repentance, which would mean for mass amounts of American individuals to turn to Christ and ask forgiveness. I heard John Piper one time say that on NPR after the towers fell. They were calling all these pastors. Most of us were alive. Some of us weren't. 2001, they were asking different religious leaders, what, what should we take away from this? And he was like, that we all as a country need to repent for our sin. I was like, yeah, oh, thank you, right? And then they were like, thank you, Pastor Piper. And they went on, right? But that's the only solution, national repentance. Again, for mass amounts of American individuals to turn to Christ and ask forgiveness and to take him as their young heifer. That's the idea. Jesus is the cow who was broken, so to speak. He is the sacrifice so that we could be atoned for. So here tonight, everyone in this room, one of two things is true about every one of us. Either you've already owned this, you've already claimed Christ as your substitute, condemned in your place, or you're still actually under this judgment of all the sin that you've personally been a part of and of the sin that has happened all around you in your society that you, you weren't a part of, but you didn't do anything about. And if that sounds overwhelming, it's because it is overwhelming. That's what it is if you read the scriptures. It's a billion pound weight the size of the Pacific, which is drowning everyone around us, which is, again, why America is the way it is right now. But anyone who realizes that, who feels that weight, feels themselves like, okay, I'm drowning in sin. And they look up and they cry out to God for mercy. And they hear the message, Jesus died in your place on the cross and shed his blood so you could be forgiven of sins. Repent of your sin, call Jesus Lord. And anyone who does that, you can be free. The Bible is very clear that, that the guilt that is on us, no matter how heavy it is, whether it's a personal thousand pound weight of guilt that I earned, or whether it's just, I, I wake up into adulthood in a society where I'm like, oh no, we're in big trouble. We're under the judgment of God. And I'm an American too, which is true of all of us. Whatever the size of that weight is, God's arm is strong enough to lift it. And the arms of Christ stretched out on a cross and died in our place so that he could come to every one of us and say, I can lift that off your shoulders. I actually already carried it to the cross. It's already dead. It'll kill you if you don't get out from under it. It'll kill you forever. But Christ is strong to save. This is what he does, right? This is why he came and why he died. So as I was reading these passages in Deuteronomy, I just couldn't get away from like all this assumption about how bad shed blood was for a society and what that meant for us. But praise the Lord. That would be the worst, most depressing message ever if you couldn't turn and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. True, full forgiveness. And that if you, you and I, if you trust Christ, you bear that weight, the Bible says, no more. The things that I've done, the things that were done to me, 
all laid on Christ on the cross. He bore it all. He took the punishment for it. And he offers us, what does the Bible say? He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the what? The righteousness. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, brother. Isn't that awesome? That's everything we've been looking at tonight, isn't it? You're like, I'm not righteous. And Jesus is like, I am. And I have plenty to go around. Have mine. Have my righteousness. Have my righteousness. Have my status of never having sinned. Jesus is like, I never oppressed anybody. I never shed any innocent blood. I never even told a single, think about, Jesus was amazing. He's like, it's okay, I can do this. I never did any of those things. And you can have my status. You can have my status. That's the message of the gospel. It's utter freedom from guilt and sin and, and, and the sentence of death. Is it not, my friends? And so we're set free by the blood of Christ and given the commission of going everywhere and telling everyone, I don't know if you're going to think you want to hear this when I first say it to you, but you can be free. No more guilt, no more shame, as if it never happened. Or as Jesus said, like you were born all over again. Isn't that what he said? Praise the Lord. Let's stand. Again, if you'd like prayer, there's going to be people that can pray for you in the back.